MNK Talk YA now presents Soul of the Sword Part 2 of the Shadow of the Fox Trilogy by Julie Kagawa. MK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this week we finished the second book in the Shadow of the Fox trilogy by Julie Kagawa. Um, we finished Soul of the Sword. Yeah. So we finally made it to the destination we've been seeking since pretty much the beginning. <laughs> the Steel Feather Temple, finally! Yes. And I'm kind of glad we did not go back to the Forest of a Thousand Eyes again because it was a terrifying place and I didn't know what we would do there. It was a lot. Too many flying horse heads and <laughs> disembodied heads with teeth in them. Okay, so wait, where did this half start again or end? Or what? where did we <laughs> where pick are up? We? <laughs> yeah. Where? <laughs> so the second half of this book started with our friends Suki, Sujutsu, and Taka. And are they our friends? I hope so. Suki definitely is. Suki is. I still haven't figured out. Sujutsu TBD. I know. I can't decide. What's your thought right now? Is he more good or bad? I think he's good. I don't know. I still (laughs) don't trust him. So far, he wants the same thing we want, but I don't know that he ultimately wants the same thing we want. I kind of think he wants the scroll for himself. Maybe, but I don't even know who he is or what his MO is, so it's hard to decide. That's fair. But we do have this vision from Taka where he predicts that the white-haired prince, which I assumed was Dasuki, Mm -hmm. will break upon the demon's sword and his dog, which I assumed to be Okami, will follow him to his death. Oh my goodness, that makes so much more sense. I was thinking it was one of the like spirit dogs and I was like, why are they following (laughs) Dasuki? No, because Okami always calls himself You're a right. stinking Ronin dog. Yeah, no, that makes way more sense, but I just totally didn't get there on my own, so. <laughs> that's fair. I mean, there are literal dogs in this. But I also remember being like, that's weird that they called out the dog. Like, I didn't think the dog mattered or was that close to Daisuke. And we learned that Suki is a ghost and she's bound to the earth because of her love of Desuke and she really wants to change his fate and like tie her destiny to his which is sweet and sad yeah but this is where I couldn't figure out Sagetsu part of me felt like he was still manipulating Suki and part of me felt like he was like I couldn't tell when he was revealing information or sharing things how much he knew beforehand and was trying to get her to do something specific versus was he really like sure we can change fate to help the guy you love just out of the goodness of his heart or did he have an ulterior motive for that i don't know because later in this book taka has another vision that's terrifying right and he's like he visualizes that an army of demons attack the temple and no one survives like even in his vision even Yumiko dies mm-hmm. and Suki is like oh my gosh I have to go warn him and the fox lets her go she, she was like I have to go warn them that Geno's army is gonna attack and Sujitsu is like I can't go but if you want to go go so he didn't try and stop her so that makes me think that like he's good but he also said he couldn't go because 
like they know him and wouldn't welcome him or something. So that kind of implies that the guardians of the scroll don't trust him for some reason, which again is why I'm like, maybe he has been trying for a thousand years to get the scroll or something. I don't know. I'm just not sure. I agree that so far his actions have more often than not benefited our core group of heroes, but I'm just sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop. I don't trust him yet. Okay, that's fair. We'll we'll see. We still have one book left, so. <laughs> and I forgot. So we left part one ended with Yumiko trying to find Tatsumi in the dream world, right? She hadn't actually found him yet. Yeah. Yeah, and she ends up finding him, and she basically says, hey, I'm going to come and <laughs> infiltrate your brain in a couple minutes here. Hang in there. And he actually is able to talk to her, too, and he warns her that Hakimono made a deal with Geno and that he's he's you know trying to steal the dragons the dragon scroll so now at least our again core group quote unquote even though they're separated information has been shared appropriately so that everyone knows what's going on which again sort of felt like i have mixed feelings about this whole dream world travel communication thing because it sort of felt not like a cop-out cop-out but like an easy solution for passing information between the two that's fair it is Mm-hmm. But I also thought it was kind of cool, and I'm curious to see what keeps going. And the the part about, like, multiple souls fighting for possession of the body, like, that part I thought was really interesting. It was more the dream world itself that I was sort of like, eh, I don't know if this is too convenient for me or if I like it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and the whole thing where, like, your fox powers are more powerful in the dream world because, like, you can make them be whatever you imagine. Like, I, I think that's a little eh, iffy as well. Yeah, and then I, I didn't fully understand. I'm totally jumping ahead now. I'll hold off. I'll share it when we get there. <laughs> um, the other thing, though, that Tatsumi tells Yumiko in the dream world is that he wants her to kill him if her plan doesn't work. So he was like, please do not make me be the instrument that allows Geno to rise again. So you must kill me. And she agrees. Yeah. Part of me, again, was like, okay, we all know that was, everyone's been saying this all along. Yeah. (laughs) I think it would have been more interesting if he was like, please just don't kill me. Like, (laughs) paralyze me or like do something else, but just let me live (laughs) or like imprison me. But I don't know. Yeah, that would have been a nice twist, right? Because he's, he's been such a vessel this whole time and like. I don't know, the whole thing about, like, he's had to suppress his emotions all this time. It would have been actually kind of cool if he was like, yeah, please don't kill me because I love you and I, like, finally found something to live for. Like, I don't know. Yeah, but really, true to his character, I agree. What he did in the book is more what I expected. But luckily, we haven't had to kill him, at least not yet. Oops, spoiler for the second half of the book. (laughs) Which does not mean we were actually successful, but we'll get there. Oh, the other thing I remembered with Sejutsu is he asks a snow witch for help, Yukiko of the North. Remember? Yeah, and again, because she owed him a favor and she's like lives on a pile of bones of other people. So what did he possibly do for her that would be considered a good guy good. move? <laughs> Maybe Sejutsu is trying to make amends for his past actions. Maybe. <laughs> You don't buy it. That's fine. That's fine. (laughs) She was an interesting character because what he asked her to do is basically not necessarily stop, but delay, what's his name, Hakimono, Mm -hmm. on his journey to the Steel Feather Temple so that 
his what does he call it it's not chess but like some other strategic game that he like keeps referencing about like getting the players in place and like getting the stage set and Mm. um in order for basically in order for Yumiko and Ko to get to the temple in time to prepare for his arrival he sends the winter witch lady after him and that was kind of cool to see that would have been a fun scene yeah like when she sends the snowstorm I think that would be the scene I would pick to see yeah. in, in a movie even like the that. frozen villagers like everyone frozen exactly where they were and I like how she can turn into snow like every time he tries to attack her she like melts and turns into snow and she's like I'm cold itself you can't escape me and he, she like traps him in ice yeah even when she like divides and I know Yumiko sometimes uses that trick too but I just think it's so cool to see like one become many or many and then the fire versus the ice yeah I think that would be a really almost beautiful full scene to watch yeah that could be really beautiful do you you probably haven't seen it but um castlevania is like was one of my favorite shows on netflix Mm-mm, i haven't seen it there's a scene where um one of the characters uses ice as a weapon and like splits people in half with it and it totally reminds me of this oh man mm-hmm. speaking of illusions we have yumiko using more fox magic a lot of fox magic she is so up she's gotten way more comfortable with that I love the scene where they were, it was like right after they travel along the shadow path again and they're ambushed by the shadow clan. Mm -hmm. And that's when Master Yuro was shot and killed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But she uses an illusion of like floating heads and dragons and she scares off the assassins. But then my favorite part was when she just created illusions of other assassins and they all kill each other. Mm-hmm. And at the end, she was looking around and she was like, who did all this? And everyone was like, um, you did. <laughs> like, Yeah, it was a good, I mean, they weren't good people who got killed, but it was still a good reminder of almost if she goes too far down that Kitsune magic route, like the negative unintended consequences of like the chaos she can cause. Yeah, yeah, that was the first time where she was like, oh my gosh, I actually like use this magic to kill someone, a-, a bunch of people. And we also saw a lot of her own buddies, this happened multiple times as she's using her magic, don't know that she's using her illusions. So they like also are terrified by things she's creating or worried that she's being crushed by stones or or whatnot and I think that's an interesting thing too like she almost needs a code for the other people to be like don't worry this one's fake but like I don't know (laughs) yeah because that was that scene where they finally get to the steel feather temple and there's all those stone statues guarding it Mm -hmm. which one of them was Benkei did you notice that I did notice that Yeah. yeah that was awesome he was the bridge guy, right? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bridge guy. Yeah. And Yumiko, like, this scene was a little bit hard for me to visualize. So the statues came to life, and then Yumiko uses illusions and then creates a, a version of herself. And, like, in the chaos of the statues trying to stab her, they ended up, like, collapsing the whole place. And then they, like, buried themselves under the graphite or under the granite. Is that what happened? Yeah, so I was a little bit unclear about how the actual, not avalanche, but whatever you call when the stones all fell, how that got triggered. But yes, she like had a fake version of herself to lure them somewhere dangerous and everyone thought that she was really there, crushed with all the rocks, but she had been hiding somewhere safe. Right, okay. But I, yeah, I was a little bit unsure like how she started the actual crumbling because that wasn't an illusion, that was real. Yeah. (laughs) And then... 
that scene where she created the version of herself and everyone else was terrified because they fell for it um that scene like really spoiled the next part for me because we have Taka's vision come true where Hakimono arrives and Reika tries to bind him and he like rips her heart out or cuts he cuts off her head and then he cuts off Dasuke's head and then he rips Yumiko's heart out and the entire time like as soon as Dasuke died at first I was like "Ooh, is this him falling at the sword and then as soon as Reika was killed and then as soon as Yumiko was killed I was like okay these are illusions like I didn't fall for it did you no I mean yes I agree I didn't fall for it it's it's almost gotten to a point where I am not sure what to believe all of the time now because Mm -hmm. even again I'm jumping ahead a little bit but at the very end when she hands the scroll over I was expecting that to be an illusion too because the first time it was yeah the first time she like gives or gives Hakimoto the scroll it ends up being one of Reika's paper magic things and it like explodes in his face so yeah I was but I I think that the scroll that she ends up giving Jeno is real I I agree now but like when it was happening I was just waiting (laughs) for especially when everyone's looking at her like why are you doing this I thought there was going to be another one of those situations where they couldn't tell that she was using an illusion Mm -hmm. but no I agree though I suspected because I thought it was a terrible plan if it wasn't an illusion I was like they 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 wouldn't do this and even Hakimono was kind of like this is really dumb but he was like overconfident and I did like that it had layers so even though I suspected it was an illusion I liked that it wasn't just a simple illusion like they had like the fake binding Mm -hmm. and like kept him in this area for a longer time allowing him to think he was fighting and winning while it really was just a bunch of illusions and I also thought it was interesting when he started to realize he was like oh I can't smell the blood and I can't taste the blood Mm. and I hadn't thought about that aspect of her illusions like yes you see what you want but it's not like a full sensory experience I guess that's so true and now that she's used that trick once like I wonder if her enemies will fall for it again I don't know but it was so yeah two really interesting things happened there one was we actually it did work on Hakimono and we were able to bind him long enough for her to go into Tatsumi's soul body whatever Mm -hmm. we call it (laughs) and then two we found out that Gino actually turned on Hakimono and instead of waiting for him to bring back the scroll, basically used him as a unintentional guide slash distraction and followed with this whole group of demons and nobody knew that they were coming. So while they were tricking Hakimono and trying to get Tatsumi's body back, Gino and the <laughs> demon gr- crew are sneaking up on them. With more flying heads and centipedes. Yes. And half of our group is like, passed out is the wrong word, but in their soul world. <laughs> yeah. They're definitely not helping the fight. Yes. At least not physically. I was just waiting for someone's body to like, something to happen to someone's body and them to be jerked out of the soul. I don't know. Well, I liked when Yumiko went into Tatsumi's memory and she had to like, go really deep in his consciousness to like, find his soul. And she saw all those horrible memories of him like, in training to become the demon slayer. Or whatever. Like the puppy thing? Ugh. Why would you make someone kill a puppy? So awful. Yes, you can take you can take this puppy whose whole family has died, nurse it back to health. It's like your best friend even a general puppy, this is great any I mean, this is terrible anyways, but this puppy is like one he nursed back to health, like was completely trusting and dependent on him, followed him everywhere. Its nickname was the Shadow's Shadow. Yeah. 
Ugh, that killed me. I know. But it also was like, I don't know, it was also so cliched. Like, I feel like that whenever you hear of like people going through like tough tests that they have to pass, like, I feel like one of them is always you have to kill a puppy. (laughs) What are you reading? I'm just kidding. (laughs) I feel like that's so like overdone. I don't know. I kind of wished it was something else. Also because I like puppies. I do think there is this level of even if it wasn't a puppy, it would be something like you have to turn on the thing you love most to prove your loyalty to the clan. Like mm-hmm. that thing for sure. I feel like I don't necessarily see puppies all the time, but you're right. It wasn't <laughs> super unique, but I thought it was, ugh, it still got me in the in the heart. Mm-hmm. And then another very unexpected thing happened. Whenever whenever Geno arrives, Hakimono is like really mad that he was betrayed. And he realizes that he needs Tatsumi to help fight Geno, right? So like Himiko and Tatsumi and Hakimono are all in one body, like dueling for this soul, I guess. And they realize like, actually, we all need to join forces. So which I actually loved that twist a lot. I didn't necessarily see that coming. And I love that they have sort of this untrusting alliance now between Hakimono and Tatsumi. And it's a new level. It's not just both souls are in the body like they were previously. Somehow they've merged or something. And none of us really know exactly what that means, except it did keep Tatsumi's soul from leaving the body, which allowed Hakimono to not go back in the sword. And therefore, everyone won a little bit, but who knows what the cost is yet. (laughs) Well, it was because your your guy, Akka the Red, who you were like, why is this my guy so scary? I always think like he's your, I don't know, he's your character. (laughs) Because you were making fun of him last time, which I don't disagree with. But wait, I still don't understand, because what did he even do? I mean, he was the one who stabbed him, but I still don't think he was that scary, right? He had just been bound for so long that they couldn't fight off very well? I guess so. Well, we learned that he is one of the four generals of Jigoko, right? So, like, Hakimono is one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did forget about that part. You're right. And so Mm -hmm. Hakimono was real pissed that Akko the Red was now working for Geno. And he does stab Tatsumi. He starts to die. And that's when... Hakimono's like, oh, you can't die. Like, I need you to fight with me. And so he invites Tatsumi to merge with his soul so they can become one. And that allows Hakimono somehow to, like, heal Tatsumi's body. Which that was a little wishy-washy, too. I kind of bought that, though, because remember when Hakimono was in charge of the body and he healed quicker like a demon does? Mm Mm-hmm. And I just, like... I'm just so curious what the cost of this merging is because I don't think there's going to be a chance for them to unmerge later. Oh, there might not be. And now it's weird because it's just Tatsumi's body walking around and you, and like even in the narration in the book, like you sometimes could tell when it was Hakimono and you could tell when it was Tatsumi, but like you never knew which one you were going to get. Well, and didn't they even ask him like, which one are you? And he was like, I'm not really sure. Yeah. (laughs) So I am, I was not expecting it. I'm kind of curious to see how it plays out. I, Again, see how they align right now because Akimono now a needs that body since he's not sure how to break if the body dies he's going back in the sword which is like the last thing he wants and True. B wants revenge because he's that kind of person anyways <laughs> so like for now they're kind of on the same page but I I don't I don't know how long that will last <laughs> it's an uneasy alliance for yes. sure and it goes back to your question last book of how can a demon and a person be like equal footing like now that their souls have merged I sort of feel like it's somehow balanced or they're not fighting each other the same way but I still feel like as a demon isn't he stronger I don't like I'm still kind of confused by how that works 
Do you remember, like, whenever Yumiko first enters his soul, Hakimono wants to fight Tatsumi? And he originally takes his true mm-hmm. form, and he's, like, immense and all-powerful and terrible. And then he shrinks himself, because he's like, actually... I want to fight on even footing so we can truly know, like, who has the right to this body. So he totally could have just crushed Tatsumi whenever he wanted. But again, now they've merged. So I think that was true. Like, I still feel like the rules have changed now that they've... Because they didn't just both agree to, like, not fight each other. They actually, like, did some weird Mm -hmm. merging magic thing. They're a single soul that has pieces of both of them. So is that single new soul half and half or is that because that seems weird since to your point and what we were just saying he was so much stronger bigger more powerful so how could he be happy would your soul also be more powerful i don't know (laughs) i don't really know i'm kind of (laughs) confused i don't i don't know but i do really like the idea of these two enemies who were technically joined for so long you know like even though hakimono was in the sword before Mm -hmm. like they were still so intimately connected. And now they are truly like one soul in one body, but they're still enemies, which yeah, I I think it's really a fun idea. I agree. And I love when people we think are enemies become Mm -hmm. friends and friends become enemies a little bit. And I buy that. It wasn't just like he changed his mind. Like I, motivation wise, I also buy it. And it's a little bit of a shaky alliance right now. So I totally. And speaking of friends to enemies and enemies to friends, how do we feel about Okami and Desuke's blossoming relationship? Oh my goodness, they're so funny. I love all the comments that go over Yumiko's head and like Rank is always <laughs> yeah. like turning red. <laughs> like did someone like made a poem about like two male swans dancing and Yumiko was like, I don't get it. <laughs> Yeah. The thing I don't like about it is how Yumiko just keeps like spying on them. It makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) That was weird. That was super weird. And even she was like, I need to leave right now. And then they were making out and she was like, yeah, I really need to leave. And then she just like doesn't. like. (laughs) I know. That part just made me a little bit uncomfortable. But I like them as a couple. I am curious because now we have also seen that like this is kind of what I mentioned before just like especially in the first book before we had any kind of hint about this relationship developing. I thought that Suki and and Dasuke were potentially going to be some kind of a item and we did find out that Suki is staying in the mortal realm because she's in love with him. So I'm just a little bit sad that she's already like lost so much and at some point she's going to realize that he yeah loves I someone know. else. <laughs> But overall, I'm happy, especially because Okami is one of my favorite characters. So I think it, it was funny watching them, too, because they are still such two opposites. And mm-hmm. it's sad because, like, Okami is, like, hesitant to be with Desuke because he's like, uh, listen, like, I'm scum. I'm disgraced. Like, it's too shameful for you to be with me. Which is kind of like his self-loathing is kind of sad, but also Desuki is kind of ridiculous too because like he had that moment where he like wanted to return to the Imperial City to warn the Emperor because he was like my duties to the Emperor, and Okami was like you're a coward, don't leave, like we need you, and you're a coward for leaving us. And Desuki was like, well now I have to challenge you for- to a duel. <laughs> <laughs> But he was, like, so pained by it. Like, I have to challenge. Like, I have no choice but to challenge you to this duel, even though I really, really don't want to, but I have to. It made me laugh so 
hard. And Okami was like, really? You're going to challenge me to a duel? And he was like, yes, I must. And, and I'll kill you if I have to. And it was just like, oh my gosh. And I love his argument too. He's like, um, you know I'm not very good with my sword, right? And he's like, no, you're not like terrible. You know, you're okay. And he's like, okay, so I'm going to sp- save the whole empire. I, like I'm decent with a bow and arrow, but do you really think – like he was kind of like – we need you because you're the our only hope, which was kind of appealing to his vanity a little bit, but actually not. And it was just funny because he was like, no, no, you're you're good enough at sword fighting. And then he's like, well, no, you're probably not actually good enough at sword fighting. <laughs> and I'll probably kill you if we end up dueling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that made me laugh. I don't know. Oh, Dasuke and his honor, his code. Do you think they're both going, do you think it's going to be a happy ending for the two of them? Or do you think one of them will die before the end of the third book? Well, uh, I'm just really worried about Taka's prophecy because, like, even though he he saw a vision that ended up being an illusion, he still separately had that vision that Desuke will break upon the demon sword and Okami will follow him. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just worried that, like, that's going to come true. And that would really upset me. <laughs> Agreed. I, I thought it was interesting how much they referenced... I guess the samurai part, they were doing this a little bit already, but this book especially, I felt like there was so much reference to and almost joking about dying an honorable death and having songs and poems written about you and your like sacrifice being celebrated because you failed in your mission, but it was a worthy mission. And like that was kind of a recurring theme and I sort of found it funny, but I also am so nervous it's some kind of foreshadowing that Mm -hmm. one or both of them is definitely might not make it. I mean, it would make sense that not all of them make it, but does it have to be those two? They're my favorite. Who else would it be though? Reiko? I mean, I don't want her to die either. Maybe, I mean, Master Yuro was enough, honestly, for me. (laughs) Yeah, I just feel like, I don't know. I feel like it has to be one of them, but I guess maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Suke will die again, maybe. <laughs> so did you research anything this week? I did a little bit. Again, talking about these references to haikus, and mm-hmm. they kept talking about kabuki theater and some of that stuff. So I studied kabuki theater in my senior year like drama class in high school, and I remember thinking it was like fascinating, So, I, but I couldn't remember a lot about it. So I actually looked up what makes something like kabuki theater and what are, what are some of the unique aspects of it and things like oh, that. Cool. So it was only tangentially related again, but I loved, again, j- just this kind of ongoing reference to how are we going to be remembered when we fail? <laughs> right. And Yumiko is like, are there any poems that like have a happy ending? <laughs> yeah. There really aren't any. It's all about like how heroic you were when you went to your death. You know what I think we should do for the last episode if we remember? Write a poem? We should write some haikus about this series. <laughs> Or about, like, our time podcasting together. Or maybe that, yeah. Haikus are kind of fun to write. We did that for my sister's bridal shower. We had all the other bridesmaids, like, write a haiku about Aaron. It was pretty funny. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) Okay, yeah, let's do it. Okay. Don't think too hard about it. We'll we'll do that later. Okay. But yeah, so Kabuki Theater, it is... Like, it literally translates to the art of song and dance. So the ka means sing, bu means dance, and ki means skill. So it's like the bringing together the art of dance and the art of song and and whatnot. And it tends to be like an outlandish visual spectacle is how it was described. (laughs) So it focuses more on the appearance than even the story. So things like costumes and props and set design and the song and the dance are Mm. sort of this over-the-top spectacular elements to make a kabuki show. 
But this part I didn't remember and I thought was pretty interesting. So Kabuki today is all male actors. That's like how, that's like when I think of Kabuki, what I think of. But it was originally created by a woman. So Hmm. Izumo no Okuni was a Shinto priestess who in the early 1600s started performing around Kyoto, including shrines and some riverbed of the Kama River. And she started an all-female troupe of prostitutes and local misfits and taught them singing and dance and theater and the women would play all the characters so men and women typically in sort of comedic plays that parodied everyday life and they were like kind of witty suggestive affairs and it became really really popular and all these rival troops started to you know um, do the same thing because it was such a popular form of entertainment and it sort of became associated with the red light district and prostitution because sometimes performers would offer their services at the same time as they were performing and things like that so there was like a moral panic um, in 1629 that led to women being prohibited from performing. Whoa. And initially there were young boys who took over their roles, but they also were eligible for prostitution, so were also banned, and eventually it was just adult men who were performing, (laughs) and similar to the women, originally they were playing both uh, male and female roles. That's so cool that it started out, though, uh, with women playing both male and female roles, because it's Mm -hmm. like the reverse of, I don't know, so many different types of theater that you hear about. And it's kind of funny that. that it did this, like, complete 180 flip it was like all women initially and now it's like all guys i think it's interesting that i don't know for some reason they think like old old men are like the least (laughs) seductive i guess (laughs) yeah oh that's so weird so there are three main categories of kabuki plays so the first are jide mono which are sort of historical and legendary stories and then there are sewa monos which are contemporary tales like after the 1600s, and then Shosagoto, which are dance dramas. So there's some... Sounds like it would be such a cool thing to see. Oh my goodness, it is so cool to see. Again, we... So I I didn't do a lot of theater in high school. It was just like I needed an art credit, and I took it my senior year, and I like... I don't know. It was just like one of the most fun classes because everyone in there, we were all like so close to graduating and didn't really care, and I love words and stories. We had to Mm -hmm. do a lot of acting, but I tended to take like vaccine roles, like painting sets and like coming up with props and like reading the stories and giving... Like I loved all of that, not the actual performing part, but we watched some kabukis on uh, video and they were yeah you should definitely check it out it's very interesting and they're just again so over the top and as long as you're like prepared going in it can be really entertaining for that purpose it sounds beautiful Mm -hmm. it really really is yeah the visual just the visual elements are so unique I think also my research was very tangential as well sometimes I just well that's just a how my mind works and how my google works I think Mm -hmm. but uh sometimes it's also nice to not go too far into a book if I this series especially I feel like there's so many characters and we're getting hints of things yes in some ways it would deepen my understanding but we also keep shifting so like the winter witch I thought was interesting but now she's gone and I don't really care to know I don't know I feel like we see a lot already I don't know my research was about the winter witch (laughs) oh sorry I mean I can't wait to hear more about her I actually thought she was really interesting I just yeah well, very tangentially related to The Winter Witch. Um, I didn't even, actually, I should have looked up Yukiko to see if that was an actual figure. But I really liked the fact that she 
had this garden made of bones. Mm -hmm. So that took me down a rabbit hole where I was researching the most interesting graveyards in the world. Ooh. So here's a couple really interesting graveyards. Are these going to be creepy? Are they haunted? They're not that creepy, honestly. Okay. No, they're not. The first one is the creepiest. So the first one was Potter's Field in New York. It's located on Hart Island. And over the past century and a half, over a million bodies were buried there. Whoa. Yeah. And it was a burial ground for bodies of people who were either homeless or nameless or like people who who's who died alone and were never identified they were often buried there it also included individuals who either just weren't claimed by their families or couldn't afford a private funeral and how can a million like how big is it i mean it's on an island so it is i think it's it is fairly big but a lot of the people were buried in mass graves that just seems like an unimaginable number to me I just think the idea of a mass grave is horrific. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the people uh, buried in the mass graves were inmates from Rikers Island. And uh, it was also, this island was used as a quarantine station during the yellow fever epidemic in 1870. And in that period, it also contained a woman's psychiatric asylum and a tubercularium. So Dude, it, this sounds like that Italian island a little bit. Oh, yeah, <laughs> totally. But it, it was like a site of, for a lot of places that would have had a lot of deaths, I mm-hmm. guess. So that kind of led to the whole idea of the mass grave situation. But it sounds horrific. Yeah, it's, it's weird to think about. Like, technically, I know if I'm dead, I'm not going to actually care what happens to my body. But if I think about, like, I don't care what happens to my body, I do (laughs) that sounded weird but well it's just it's sad to think of like all the people who like weren't claimed or just you know didn't have anyone who cared about enough about them to like ensure proper proper burial rights i don't know well that was interesting even in the book when they were attacked and all the shinobis who attacked them died but Mm -hmm. they buried the two they knew in the and they couldn't dig right so they like buried them under rocks or something Mm -hmm. But then they left everyone else just in the field. Can you imagine being the next person to travel that road and be like... Oh my god, no. Oh man. Okay, the other ones are much more cheerful. So... (laughs) As cheerful as mass graveyards can be. (laughs) This one is... This is so interesting. So this is the Sedlec Ossuary in the Czech Republic. So this is a church. And it's called the Bone Church. And the interior of this church is decorated with between 40,000 and 7,000 human skeletons. Whoa. So it, the bones used to be in the graveyard next to the church, but in the 1870s, um, it became very overcrowded. So the church officials employed a man named uh, Francis Rint. His, name, his last name was Rint. And he was uh, charged with moving all of the bones inside the church uh, because the graveyard was so overcrowded. So he ended up bleaching them all to give them a uniform look. And then they created essentially artwork with the bones, which I'm surprised there wasn't like more of a general outcry against this because... Have you ever been to the Capuchin Crypt? No. I've been to the Czech Republic, but I didn't see this there there's like a chapel in rome that like all these friars some capuchin friars their skeletal remains were like turned into artwork kind of too in these chapels and that we visited it last november that's so interesting 
it's like fascinating and kind of creepy at the same time. I hope they gave consent because that's the only thing that, that I like kind of weirds me out is that like they just took these people's bones and they turned them into like there's a huge chandelier in the um like in the middle which contains at least one of every bone in the human body and it hangs from the center of the nave with garlands and there's like garlands of skulls around the vault. There's two large bone chalices, four bone candelabras, six bone pyramids, two bone monstrances. The uh, You would probably know this. The vessel used to display the Eucharistic host. Okay. There's a family crest. There's skulls, candle holders. Basically, like, the whole church is just decorated in bones. So whose bones are they? It's just, like, all the people who were buried in that churchyard. Okay. Interesting. Before the 1870s. Yeah, it's... It's crazy to think about using bones as like an art form. Yeah. But also the human body is like a really beautiful thing. And it's, it was at least at the Capuchin Chapel or the uh, Capuchin Crypt, it was really cool to see how they use like different types of bones to make different, like it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. It was just also like weird to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So in France, there is a cemetery that's called the Cemetery of Dogs and Other Domestic Animals. It's essentially a pet cemetery. I love it. (laughs) It's the oldest pet burial ground in the modern world. It opened on the banks of the Seine in 1899, and it gave rich pet owners a place to lay their pets to rest. Most of them are cats and dogs, but you can, if you look around, you can see gravestones for birds, sheep, rabbits, monkeys, fish, and even a lion. Oh my goodness. This is a fun fact. At the entry to the monument is a statue of Barry, the St. Bernard Mountain Dog, who rescued the lives of... 40 people who were trapped in um, the mountains. Dogs are the best, man. I know. And um, Rin Tin Tin was buried there after his death in 1932, which I thought was really sweet. This is mostly not related at all, but we've been watching Bachelor, the greatest of all time, because we're that (laughs) bored in quarantine. (laughs) And it was the season I never saw. I can't remember the guy's name, but on one of his hometown dates, the girl's mom and family were just a little bit out there and she had like had a dream and then this dove appeared and the dove died and she wanted his help to bury the dove so like part of their hometown date was like bury doing a ceremony to bury this dead dove it was so funny and weird (laughs) just imagining like come meet my family we're gonna bury a dead dove (laughs) um that would have sent me probably running for the hills (laughs) Well, the funny thing was when it started, the family was just a little bit eccentric and James was like, this kind of reminds me of your family. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, but they wouldn't be like this on national TV. And then it got really weird. And I was like, yep, yeah, not quite. My family's not that crazy. <laughs> not that <out> <laughs> yeah. Okay. The next one is the Mary Cemetery in Romania. This is kind of cool. So it is a cemetery where the headstones are really colorfully decorated and um, it's like a it's like a beautiful, charming uh, cemetery, and it's it's just very famous for its colorful tombstones. But the thing are they like painted or mm-hmm. made from colored stone? Okay, cool. The thing that's funny though is that on a lot of the gravestones, they have they have like colorful depictions of the person's life story. So Ooh. it's kind of funny because like so they they tell the life of the person on the stone just like in funny ways. Um, sometimes. There are some that are, like, calling people out for, like, infidelity or, like, overindulgence. (laughs) There's one inscription that reads, 
Under this heavy cross lies my poor mother-in-law. Three more days, should she have lived, I would lie, and she would read this cross. You who hear upon passing, not to wake her up, please try, because if she comes back, she'll criticize me more. (laughs) But I will surely behave, so she'll not return from the grave. Stay here, my dear (laughs) mother-in-law. I just think it's like... I don't know. It's like a nice kind of lighthearted way that's like outside of the norm, which I kind of appreciate. Yeah. And when you think about it, that almost makes people more memorable because I don't know, however many years later over in Chicago and Arizona now we're talking about this. Totally. People are listening and yeah. And I would like want people to look at my grave and laugh and like, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe not say mean things about me, but like, <laughs> it's it's just a very different way of honoring the dead by like celebrating it with funny stories and color. And it's just, it's very different. Love it. And the last one are the hanging coffins of Sagada in the Philippines. Ooh. Or Sagada. Um, so the people of Sagada have been practicing this tradition for uh, two, over 2,000 years. So instead of burying their loved ones, the elderly actually construct their own coffins out of hollowed log, and then after their death, their coffin is hung on a cliff face or inside a tall cave. When are you supposed to start building it? That's a good question. I don't know. (laughs) And maybe it's a lifelong project. But they hang them on the side of cliffs because they believe that the higher your body is placed after death, the better chance your soul has of, like, reaching a higher place like reaching a higher nature in the afterlife. So if you visit Sagada, you will see tons of coffins strung up on the side of the cliffs. And it's, I mean, you shouldn't go near it, but it's like a really striking view. And some of the coffins are like well over a century old. Wow. And eventually they deteriorate and fall, but it's it's really impressive. That sounds like a, yeah, a resting image for mm-hmm. sure. So yeah, that was my research. A little Mormon. That's but fascinating. Yeah, No, fascinating. It, was, it was good. I think it's, I mean, it makes sense, but the way humans have made sense of death and the afterlife in all these different cultures around the world in different time periods, I think it's like really fascinating to think about. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it makes sense that humans, no matter where you are, are going to have questions or thoughts or beliefs about that because it's a universal truth, right, that we die. But mm-hmm. I-, I love all the different ways it's been interpreted and, and how people uh, demonstrate those beliefs and and different practices around funerals and burial and Mm -hmm. all that yeah and i guess like the death that we had too of master euro kind of inspired that as well yeah because it is cool in second world fantasies to see like how people bury their dead because really it's a fantasy you can come up with anything but i like that julie kagawa like took the steps to include that detail i agree And it is interesting because in this book, we also are sort of dealing with, I mean, we've seen other aspects of the afterlife. So we've seen Mm -hmm. when they're on the uh, shadow walk or whatever, and we see the people who are stuck between worlds. We've obviously seen um, various types of ghosts that can't let go and move on. Even Suki right now, we're not sure how she'll ever be able to sort of be released from her staying on earth piece, but but it is interesting. Um, Should we talk about the next book? the last book in the series yeah let's do it so this is called night of the dragon do you think the dragon will appear in this one oh wait that was our prediction right that we wouldn't see the dragon yet but someone would have all the pieces of the scroll oh yeah so we pretty much nailed it we totally did (laughs) and 
I really think the dragon, I mean, I will be really disappointed if we don't get to see the great Kami dragon because <laughs> it's called the Night of the Dragon. Someone's got all the pieces of the dragon scrolls. I'm so curious to see him too. I like wonder, I sort of like in my head imagine him as kind of snarky, yeah. but he's also really powerful. I don't know. I'm just curious to see how it plays out. Like grumpy sure. at being woken up and stuff. Yeah. Or like, you know, I, I'm imagining like the ship and like, the good guys and the bad guys are all there and someone's saying the prayer and the dragon appears and he's like, which one of you called me? And then they're all like, no, it was me. Nah, nah, nah. And he's like, oh my goodness, you humans. I don't know why. That's what I'm picturing right now. <laughs> that sounds like, a, that's a pretty good prediction. Okay, so we're going to read up to part three for next week and I can read a little bit about the back of the book. Sounds good. Oh, great. So <laughs> the what? introduction opens with all is lost. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how this book ended. Like, I guess time everyone, some of the lives were still there, but... You're right. We just I mean, handed over the whole scroll, so yeah. And now the plan is to just try and stop him before he summons the dragon, so yeah, we'll see. I'm still kind of surprised no one stopped her from doing that. So. People were pretty upset with her, too. Yeah. I mean, I don't blame them. That no. was like, we, we all agreed to put our lives on... But I also, what was the alternative? Like, he just would have killed all of them. Like, they if the die. scroll was just on her person, yeah, he still would have gotten it, and they all would have died. So part of me is like, that. Would, it's not like if she hadn't have handed it to him, he would never have found it. That's true. He still would have gotten it, and they just all would have died. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. But anyways, go ahead. <laughs> all is lost. <laughs> all Tell is me lost. more. <laughs> To save everyone she loves from imminent death, Kitsune shapeshifter Yumiko gave up the final piece of the scroll of a thousand prayers. Now she and her ragtag band of companions must make one desperate final effort to stop the master of demons from using the scroll to call the great Kami dragon and make the wish that will plunge the empire into chaos. Shadow clan assassin Kaje Tatsumi has regained control of his body and agreed to a true deal with the devil the demon inside him, Hakimono. Mm-hmm. They will share his body and work with y- with Yumiko to stop a madman and to separate Hakimono from Tatsumi and the cursed sword that trapped the demon for nearly a, mil- a millennium. But even with their combined skills and powers, this unlikely team of heroes knows the forces of evil may be impossible to overcome. And there is another player in the battle for the scroll, a player who has been watching, waiting for the right moment to pull strings that no one even realized existed until now. Holy crap, you totally called it. Okay, but we still don't know if he's a good player or a bad player. That's true, I suppose. I just threw the book down on the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I still... Do you think he is the silver fox? Is he the silver fox? Well, I don't know. I mean... Because I I made that um, comparison while talking on the podcast (laughs) last week, but then this half when I was reading it, I kept being like, oh, yeah, he is. Wait, no, he's not. Yeah, he is. No, no, he's not. Yeah. I think he is because... He, the silver fox gave uh, Yumiko like a portion of his power to help her. And was that what he was referencing at the end too, where he said he didn't have that sphere? Okay. Yeah. That was sort of for me too, where I was like, okay, but it's not like, I just want it to be a hundred percent (laughs) clear. Well, now we we know that Sujitsu is now going to the island of the Kami to the birthplace of the prophecy. Which is not where everyone else is going to summon the dragon or it is. I don't know. Because <laughs> they're also going to an island, right? Yes. I mean, the island of the Kami sounds like the islands where the great Kami dragon would live, right? Yeah. <laughs> I had to guess. Oh my gosh. I don't I'm know. I'm imagining like Olympus though. Mm. Because aren't the Kami like the big gods? Yeah. With a capital K. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I think we should just start reading. Yeah. Mm. Except we're going to end soon. I, I feel like this book I got way more into than the first book. 
Yeah, I agree. I liked it a lot. I liked, um, just, I liked, now that I, like, know the characters better, I'm, like, enjoying reading about them. Yeah, and even seeing, like, some more dimension to, like, like getting to know Hakimono and having him be sort of, like, the bad guy and then almost an ally and, like, some of the changing alliances and all of that. I love seeing seeing that play out. And I feel like um, this book didn't feel like a middle book to me. Like, it felt like there was enough adventure going on. It's, like, advancing the plot well, but I feel like two books wouldn't have been enough. Like, I'm excited that we have another one, which I don't often feel with trilogies. If anything, I almost feel like the first book was not even a middle book, I guess, because we had to lay the foundation, but I don't feel like enough happened in the first book Mm -hmm. for me to think it could have stood on its own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would agree. But yeah, this one was interesting. Like we we did all the things we needed to accomplish and now there's a new issue. Like we got to the Steel Feather Temple, we found our friends and we, I don't know, I feel like, yeah, enough shifted at the end that we have another book lined up, but it doesn't just feel like a middle book. I agree. I'm rambling. <laughs> Do you want a joke? Oh, yes, please. Okay. What has two butts and kills people? Two butts? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, butter. Button. Think I don't ana- know what. Think anatomically. I don't know. <laughs> An assassin. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that was that was good. That was appropriate for this too. Yeah, I thought so. We have a whole team of assassins. <laughs> oh man, I should have gotten that. That was funny. <laughs> uh, okay, should we keep reading? Let's do it. If anyone wants to get in touch with us, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. Or find us on Facebook or Instagram at mnktalkya. And start thinking, send us if you have any good haikus about this series or about our podcast. Oh my god, that'd be amazing. And we need to start thinking of a fan name. Oh, yeah. Um, Can we be Kami Touched? Yeah, oh, I like that. (laughs) Well, let's keep thinking. We can probably come up with something better than my first thought. That's pretty good, though. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else? I'm good. Okay, bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelphy, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.